0: Behold, the sword of power,
1: Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly Wow podcast. The podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and Nothing But Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we're talking about Excalibur 47, come one and all to the ugly bug-eyed monster ball in which friends reunite, new bonds are formed, and Brian's buffoonery might get absolved? We'll talk about it. Excalibur number 47 was originally published in February 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing.
0: Sword! The land! Yes, Merlin, that's it. Set the world to rights.
1: Call the dragon. Mend the sword. Speak the charm of making. And we're back for another week of Excalibur chat With the usual crew and another super smart first time guest Who I will introduce momentarily But first, your original special executive I am Dr. Anna Bapard I'm a writer and an academic and obviously a podcaster My work usually focuses on representations of gender and sexuality in pop culture Especially comics and especially, especially superhero comics I'm always on duty as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager And I got a few gripes about this issue Tentative gripes But there's stuff I love definitely a few gripes though yeah (laughs) so we've been pretty praising all of the Alan Davis stuff so far so it'll be fun to get into a few little gripes let's leave that for now though and continue (laughs) with our introductions Mav if you'd be so kind as to reacquaint the listeners with your exploits
2: hi I'm Christopher Maverick you can call me Mav Uh, I'm the host of another show called Vox Popcast I'm a academic who studies pop culture and comics and movies and TV shows. And, you know, I'm here to tell you about, you know, my long running, running podcast that, you know, covered an issue by issue summary of, of new guardians and also, you know, Salem seven, you know, these are, these are books that I have been devoted to that like, I'm sure you've all listened to me talk for hours and hours on end about this other thing that you've never heard of and don't really care about. That's a thing that people do, right? Right no it's not and yet here we are <laughs> um, i mean there are some things that i do like about this there are a lot of things that i do not like about this so um, i'm right there
0: with you <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah we'll get into it andrew if you would like to reintroduce yourself to our fans
0: Hey, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann, a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and project lead for the Claremont Run, a big data, big social media project. If I were a chess piece, I would be the My Little Pony miniature figurine that my daughter uses as the knight when they play because they lost the original wooden piece.
1: Oh, that's so adorable. Oh my god, I love that. I want to play My Little Pony chess with with your daughter. That sounds like a fun evening. (laughs) We are joined this week by someone who knows a bunch about comics and making comics and Merlin and mythology and British folklore. Uh, The pod is enchanted to welcome Bevan Thomas. Welcome, Bevan.
3: Hi, glad to be here.
1: We are so happy to have you. I'll tell the listeners a little bit about you. So Bevan Thomas is an award-winning writer and editor who explores mental health issues such as depression and anxiety through the lens of fantasy and folklore. He is extensively involved with Cloudscape Comics, a publisher and charity dedicated to developing Vancouver's comics community. Bevan created the comics anthology series Epic Canadiana, which pays tribute to the classic Canadian superheroes of the 1940s, and which won the Gene Day Award at the 2016 Joe Schuster Awards. Congratulations! More recently, he spearheaded through the Labyrinths of the Mind, a comic anthology about mental health. For the anthology, Bevan retold a Welsh-Arthurian folktale with artist Devin Rosichuk about Sir Geraint, a knight who suffers a nervous breakdown. Bevan is currently working on two novels, An Existential Occult Story set in Vancouver, B.C., and a young adult adaptation of the Welsh legend Calhawk and Alwyn, the earliest surviving King Arthur legend. Bevan teaches writing for comics at Langara College in Vancouver, B.C. Now, Bevan, I'm so excited to chat with you because all of those things are going to be super, super relevant to this issue and Excalibur in general. And we've talked with you a little bit on Twitter before, but let's get down to Brass Tacks right away. What is your comics origin story, Bevan?
3: It's kind of uh, uh, interesting because I, like I, have, uh, I have two I uh I got into comics when I was really young. Uh, my uh mother was really into like Asterix and Tintin and so I grew up reading those and then later I was into into Marvel comics especially in the uh 1980s early 90s. I mean there's kind of much lore for Marvel comics like the official handbook of Marvel Universe, there was a role playing game, there was trading cards and so I think in some ways I almost became at least as much invested in the whole world there as an individual comic, but I ended up sort of reading a lot of, like, Thor, uh, Alpha Flight. Uh, I really liked the fact that it was sort of Canadian, and so okay. I found that kind of personally appealing. It was even set in Vancouver in a surprisingly <laughs> large amount of issues, despite the fact that's not kind of the, the closest to uh, Canada's uh, uh, heart. But then I kind of lost interest in comics for a while, like in late childhood, early, ado- uh, early uh, adolescence, and so it was kind of in the mid-high school period where I kind of got back with like Sandman and Invisibles and other uh, like Vertigo Supernatural comics and so I kind of feel like there's some like two parts of myself there's a kind of a interest in the more sort of like sophisticated, sort of heftier I guess graphic novels but also the part that's still very nostalgic for kind of the earlier uh, superhero stuff.
1: I just want to ask you a couple of Excalibur questions before we get into our discussion of this particular issue. Do you Did you read this comic growing up or was this something that you discovered later? Later.
3: I, I've read I read some of the comic. My my comic reading as a kid was often a little strangely kind of sporadic because I was uh excited when I went to the uh the comic book store and found out that secondhand comics were like three for one dollar. And so I ended up reading a lot of those. And so it often was whatever comics were available uh in bits and pieces over time. So like I've read some of Excalibur, uh like some of the uh Chris Claremont, the alan Davis. The one I was most familiar with was the Warren Ellis one actually, because my brother ended up collecting that whole set. It actually occurs to me that, uh before this podcast is probably more much more familiar with captain Britain solo stuff because oh, okay. we had the uh jimmy delano alan davis graphic novel when i was a kid and it's uh, hard to get because of like the i think the the novelty i think it was actually one of the first series I, at least i found that was actually collected into a single book because that was surprisingly not so popular in the in the 80s and early 90s and so that was interesting to read and then when i got into alan moore I picked up his sort of his Jasper's uh, Jasper Warp stuff. I mean, I always found Excalibur inter- interesting because of its uh, its Britishness.
1: We'll get back to some of your interests, Bevan, because I want to talk about folklore and uh, the Captain Britain stuff quite a bit today, because that's relevant to this issue. But before we get to that, let's do our usual issue summary. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never befriend you and then abandon you for a better offer to avoid the end of the world. But as always, let's start our escape from otherworld with a plot summary. Excalibur 47 open opens in the basement of the lighthouse, where the n Men are attacking the strange creature that burst in at the end of the last issue. As Nightcrawler and Kylan watch, Kylan notes the creature is deflecting the n Men's attacks without retaliating. Curious. Suddenly, a flock of tiny green dragon hybrids invade the cellar, stopping the fight. Numbers proudly announces that he is the father of the alternate Lockheed's children. While they congratulate the happy couple, Nightcrawler approaches the creature and apologizes for the n Men. As the suit's helmet lifts up, the occupant begins to speak in English and states that they don't wish to fight. She introduces herself as Cerise, Warrior of the Grand Jar, gene stock of Subruki, Zarstock, and Kulakai. Hers is the power to generate malleable energy fields of coherent light force that obey her will. Back on Otherworld, Brian is invited to play chess by another Captain Britain. He politely declines, to which the Other Captain tells him he is just like his father. As they talk, Brian admits he isn't as good a champion of Otherworld as his father was. The Other Captain tells him that this was intentional. As Brian demands to know more, the Other Captain explains how the chain of events that led to Excalibur's formation were all arranged by Roma. He He adds that in order to make the team gel, she curtailed Brian's individuality by adding a jinx whenever he tried to work alone. Brian heads for Roma's citadel, demanding answers. Roma tells Brian that Excalibur are needed to fight evil, the nature of which she doesn't know. She explains that Merlin started a gambit before he died, and that she has to finish it. Brian tells her that they've met Merlin recently. In response, Roma walks us through the plot of the Excalibur special edition comic The Possession in order to systematically refute everything that happened there. Roma agrees to remove the jinx on Brian. Back at the lighthouse, Numbers shakes hands with the leader of the newly arrived team of intergalactic mercenaries. They are, of course, the special executive from the older Captain Britain comics. Thug tells Nightcrawler that the TechNet have negotiated a new contract with the special executive and are no longer exiled to Earth. As the former End Men and their new employers teleport away, Thug tells Kurt that the special executive psychic has predicted with 98.73% probability that Earth-616 will cease to exist in 78 hours. After they disappear, Meg and Rachel return, soon followed by Brian. Brian and Kurt make up before Kylan demands that they find Necrom. The three recently returned members are Confused, And so Kurt begins to recount events, beginning with Alistair and Kitty going to Ireland. Speaking of Ireland, Alistair and Kitty have made a discovery. There is a chamber underground containing a powerful force of some kind. So we'll deal with the imminent destruction of the Earth on a future episode. Uh, but for now, let's talk about everything leading up to it, starting with some first impressions. And as usual, guest's privilege. Bevan, what did you make of this issue? What sort of immediately jumped out to you, if anything, upon either reading or rereading this issue?
3: I mean, I think it's a, it's a weird it's a weird issue because it's like an issue in transition. You know, we're, I think that's kind of losing characters, adding new characters, closing some plot holes, adding new ones. Like adding plot yeah. elements, and so I, so I found that like really interesting. I make it hard to judge. Like I think Cerise is a really fascinating character. And so it's interesting that she kind of, in the way they introduce her is very the inter- you know, the, the you know this kind of this the brawl at the beginning, and then she kind of reveals herself, and she's very different from how you expect she's going to look. But then they also remove re- remove the tech net, and mm-hmm. they're also interesting yeah. characters. So was, I think it was a strange to dis- remove them, especially because it almost feels like that's just to close a time loop, you know, because mm-hmm. because of time travel, we know they're going to become the special executive from the Alan Moore Cat and Britain and so they feel like it's important to show the moment when that happens when i kind of feel like maybe like you don't necessarily need to sort of close off that that element right there yeah conversely they bring back merlin which is adding a plot hole from the alan moore so it's a weird i don't know it's kind of a weird balance there they kind of are are trying to nod to alan moore in one way and then break his continuity in uh in another which is i don't know a very strange decision
1: this issue coming up with notes for it sent me down so many rabbit holes in terms of how is this connected to this thing and how does where does this go and i mean i've read this comic many times and yet it is connected to so many other things some of which make sense and some of which make less sense so i mean, that's basically my first impression but all of that makes sense to me bevan and i want to talk more about sort of what Alan Davis's motivations are here in terms of continuity. So I'm glad you brought it up. Andrew and Mav, first impressions. I know you both said that you had a few gripes about this issue, which I'm sure we will talk about.
0: I think for me, sort of exactly as Bevan is saying, like to me, Davis is kind of trying to dial us back to Moore's Captain Britain. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. He's undoing a, a lot of Excalibur. And, and I find that fascinating from like a, like a tonal perspective, because... Mm-hmm. Alan Moore's a lot of things funny isn't really one of them uh, except in a few very rare cases so you're getting this really dark tone that makes me like feel nervous for characters like Nightcrawler and Kitty and at the same time you're also doing a major shift from Marvel's house style which is still at this time largely not exclusively but largely holding superheroes and authority up as a heroic paradigm Uh, and that British style and again specifically kind of an Alan Moore style of being deeply distrustful of any authority figure including a superhero we saw that sneak in with Micromax and we're seeing it resurface here very very directly with these all powerful gods pushing people around like chess pieces so it's weird like like i like the ambition of it but i'm also again just being a baby and like lamenting potentially the loss of that excalibur tone that i love so much
1: yeah i want to talk more about that uh mav how, how are you feeling about this issue
2: i don't like this comic <laughs> i'll be honest okay it. okay um, for much the same reason as andrew i don't think he. Should, i don't think it's just that he's trying to dial it back to alan moore you said alan moore is a lot of things but he's not funny alan davis is a lot of things but he's not alan moore can't yeah. and he is funny right yeah yeah he's funny and he's going to try and do this deep cycle and this book has me worried as it turns out it turns out better than i'd be worried about okay so spoilers for the next few issues he does a better job than this book implies this book implies that he is biting off Way more than he can chew. And he's going to dial back and like sort of go back into his own way. But he's trying to do something that he is not prepared to do. And a lot of the storyline elements that he's just throwing away, like you said, there's storyline elements that I like. There's storyline elements that I think are more interesting than some of the things that he does. We'll talk about some of the weirdnesses as we go through the you know as we go through issue by issue but there's a couple of things where it's like oh okay i guess that's the status quo now because he's trying to do something that he just i'm not even claiming i could do better he's trying to do something so hard and so complex and so alan moore that you know there's a reason why people who aren't mark greenwald or alan moore don't do this like let's reconstruct Fifty years of comic book history in these twelve issues and be done with it, kind of thing. It is a very hard thing to do that seems weird when done wrong, and it seems convoluted and awkward. and In a little bit, I'll explain my my intro joke where I was talking about things that you haven't read. That's another part of it. Like everything about this just seems like, what are you doing? Like when you're t- when you talk about him, he was closing the time loop from the earlier Captain Britain series. Yay! Except for ninety five percent of your readers haven't read that and can't. Yes, they. Or they were really trying to make this Captain Britain trade paperback happen and i worked at the store and i think i sold two of them you know like <laughs> the, so it good. like yeah yeah but but i mean but he's trying to do something he's relying on lore that honestly no one knows when he gets to the possession thing, which I'm going to talk about, because that's one of my serious gripes. Like, seriously, <laughs> no one knows. Like, I read that story thirty years ago, and I didn't remember it. I, like, I had I had to go read it again for this show because I had no recollection. Of oh, of I that know. <laughs>
1: I had no recollection of it and I was like Excalibur special edition I was like I feel like I have a vague memory of this and I did find I have a digital copy of it and I found it and I was just like oh boy I do remember reading this so okay I, yeah. so what we're talking about is that there's this callback in this comic you know this is one of the things what we're griping about is so I'll just stop talking around it but there's an extended thing in this comic of Brian being shown all of these things that happened in a story that he doesn't recognize and it is a special edition called Excalibur the Possession it's not called the Excalibur special edition which is what Terry Cavanaugh calls it which just Confuses things more but that's what he's Talking about so and it is by our old friend Michael Higgins uh and So uh, Alan Davis is, is kind bad. of doing it it is, it is it's bad It's awful
2: it is yeah so <laughs> it's, it's awful it's really bad
1: <laughs> And so you can see Alan Davis Just like directly going that story sucks i'm gonna spend like three yeah. pages of this issue of excalibur redoing it and explicitly saying how much it sucks and how out of character everybody is it's sort of annoying to devote that much to it and to be honest i found it a little bit petty and it bothered me it's ex-
3: yeah. well, that's, that's my problem with it yeah i found that really petty like i almost feel like if it was like a couple of panels of just that thing that happened was a dream that was a trick for merlin like that would kind of make sense like comics are kind of you know they do that all the time but just to like point out every single thing he hates about that particular story to prove that it should be a dream. That was really, really weird. <laughs>
1: like and just also, little things like Brian being, I've never encouraged regimented training things. This couldn't possibly be something that we did and it's like oh
2: come <laughs> on buddy Well even by talking about it, the four of us who have had to read it for this show, because <laughs> we're not doing an uh, we're not doing an episode for the listeners, we're not doing an episode <laughs> on, pos- on possession. It's too bad. Happen. <laughs> and 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 you don't want us to because the four of us read it, which makes eight people on the planet. And one of the other ones is Alan Davis. Like it's (laughs) awful and it's petty. And like, he could have just never mentioned it. It wouldn't have mattered. Like it is petty and weird, but also it's awkward because the storyline doesn't make sense. And it doesn't even really help what he's trying to do here. So it just seems confusing. And so like, if you're reading this book along with us and you go, what is he referring to? I don't remember that story. Yeah, nobody did. Like it was, (laughs) and it wasn't, it wasn't memorable at the time. And to be fair to Davis, he's right. It is an awful story and davis's retelling of it makes it seem i mean as much as Dave davis doesn't like it he makes it seem 10 times more important and interesting than it was it yeah. just doesn't matter and like he's not going to do that with other stuff so like it's not like he's going to go and step through issues of marvel comics presents and talk about why they why they were a dream i've talked again i've talked before about how much i loved at this time that i was reading it and even in, even now i love john burns she hawk series and he does something similar when Byrne leaves She-Hawk, or he gets ousted from She-Hawk, and then he comes back years later, and he, reveal- he reveals that the last 20 issues were a dream. And John Byrne is a good enough writer to pull that off, and Alan wasn't. It, it, it just seems weird, and like, why are you doing this?
1: Yeah, like bad flashbacks to when that happened in the, uh, funnily enough, Crusader X storyline, when mm-hmm. Claremont does the extended digression of the uh, special edition that he never actually wrote involving Rachel's backstory and rewriting it. This is actually, in this comic, at least based on a story that does exist, but it still is an extended digression that takes it. us away from the point. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's move on from gripes about that, because I actually have gripes <laughs> about other things. Um, yeah. So let's move on. Uh, but we also, there'll be positive things in this issue, though too don't worry oh
2: there's 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 a couple things things i really love there's um just spoiler for anna is one of my favorite um character development moments in the entire run is in this issue
1: oh exciting okay well we'll get to that (laughs) Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about folklore and kind of bring Bevan back into the conversation here because I know, Bevan, that you wanted to talk about sort of how Excalibur relates to some of these things. And it is notable how little we've talked about Arthurian folklore on the podcast, given that it should be an important intertext for Excalibur, but it hasn't, to be honest, come up that much in the issues that we've had up to this point. And despite our podcast opening with a clip of Excalibur the film um, audio and, clips every, every episode. Yeah. <laughs> and like Merlin specifically we have not talked about Merlin much on the podcast at all so we have an opportunity to do those things today so I'll open it up to you Bevan to talk about some of these interconnections and I'll start with a basic question what are some of the connections between the Captain Britain mythology and British folklore does it make sense to talk about these things in the same breath
3: yeah very much so I mean I guess uh, when we kind of talk about uh, British Thank folklore, and especially with regards to sort of uh, Arthurian folklore, that it's uh, kind of um, the Brythonic folklore, sort of the the Celts, the people who later became like the Welsh and the Cornish and stuff, who were uh, living on the island when they were invaded by the Anglo-Saxons. And I think it's kind of ironic that sort of Arthur kind of becomes this sort of English figure in later uh, stories when he's actually fighting against the Anglo-Saxon invaders mm. in the original versions. But uh, yeah, obviously like there's a huge amount of stuff especially in the the early Captain Britain I mean his kind of his original appearance he kind of I think is supposed to kind of evoke the sense of a knight with the, the face mask kind of totally hiding his face he's fighting with a medieval weapon even though it's a quarterstaff in his case he's being guided by by Merlin Um, so we have this whole idea that he's he's a modern day uh, Knights of the Round Table and then that really leaned into it with, there was uh, a run of uh, Black Knight in Marvel UK's Hulk magazine where it's the Black Knight going to uh, awaken King Arthur and fight various sort of dark forces that are threatening Otherworld and he ends up recruiting an amnesiac Captain Britain who uh, accompanies him and it's all like dragons and trolls and elves and really trying to give a sense of kind of much more like um, there's a 2000 AD British comic called Slain which is sort of like a a super Celtic version of Conan the Barbarian and that's really I think what that Black Knight run is trying to sort of be, be, be its own version of that and to really lean into the mythological elements but I think they're still there in Excalibur just kind of reinterpreted in kind of a more I guess science fantasy version kind of like an Arthurian Welsh version of like Jack Kirby's A Thor with it's all like science fiction but it's science fiction to kind of evoke a particular mythological tradition
1: yeah that makes sense I mean what about the concept of Otherworld in particular like is there a folklore grounding for that concept
3: yeah um in welsh folklore which is kind of the most prominent uh Berthonic folklore it's referred to as anun or anuven which is generally translated as otherworld. it can often thought of as like the land of the dead or the land of the fairies because they really kind of blend together in uh in Celtic folklore it's kind of all of the it's the, the realm of all of like the weird the weird pagan things and don't, don't really fit in with the more kind of modern uh Christianity in fact other world is often thought of as being like beside our world rather than above or below it in the same way that heaven mm-hmm. and hell is and so mm-hmm. there's an interesting kind of more moral ambiguity like you see that in a lot of like the old Welsh stuff including the old Arthurian stuff where they they get relationships with characters who um, one of the most prominent ones is uh, Gwynapnuth, who's sort of a lord of the dead and of the, of the fairies and there's an Arthurian story Kulak and Allwen, the first kind of Welsh Arthurian story that was written down, where he's hunting a giant boar and he needs all these great heroes and demigods and fairies to help him and he goes to Nudd, who God has placed over all the monsters of the other world to stop them, otherwise they'll destroy humanity. He's this sort of strange, somewhat sinister figure, but Arthur needs his help. And so these figures can be like both good or bad, depending upon, you know, their particular context, much more ambiguous than the other kind of Christian spiritual figures
1: do you see that kind of coming out that ambiguity in the world of Captain Britain and Excalibur because I definitely that's ringing a lot of bells for me in terms of are the rulers of Otherworld good guys or are they not and what's Brian's relationship with this place because it often is very ambiguous to me.
3: Yeah I think so I mean I think there's a very conscious uh, relationship between the Otherworld folklore and the other world of Captain Britain I think especially with these issues like it was interesting to like reread uh, the, like, the Alan Moore or like the jimmy Delano comics, a big difference is in the Welsh folklore. White and gold are the defining colors of, of the fairy realm and of magic. So fairies usually have blonde hair and they wear white with like gold designs on it and gold armor and stuff like that. So uh, in Alan Moore in the early kind of Britain comics. Other worlds, lots of different colors. Whereas now you go here and it's all white and it's all gold. And mm-hmm. it's this very conscious attempt, I think, to evoke that particular color and that particular yeah, sense of otherness. There's these creatures that they seem kind of human, like no one ever calls Saturnine or Roma like, explicitly non human but you're not sure exactly how they relate to humanity, which is also kind of a very medieval thing with other ones. No one, No one's called a fairy in the old Welsh King Arthur stories. You're supposed to infer they're maybe not quite human, depending upon the context and how they dress and how they react. And I think that's what we have here. I think there's very much this, yeah, this moral ambiguity, because, yeah, they're not good. And I found it interesting to reread Alan Moore and how uh, the kind of Britain Corps, they're... They're clearly not good guys from their first appearance, with guys like uh, Captain uh, Empire or Captain Air- Airstrip One from, 19- from Orwell's 1984. And there's like three different, at least three different Nazis who happen to be member of the uh,
0: yeah.
3: <laughs> of the Captain Britain Corps. So it's oh, cool. clearly an army that is useful to the aims of the fairy folk, if you want to call them that a tool they find useful but they're not really concerned about any objective kind of moral uh, elements of, of anybody involved
1: or like at least you have that sense that they're the kind of beings that are not necessarily concerned with <laughs> like human moralities because they've got sort of a larger game that they're playing right I mean we have all these references to chess and this issue obviously and people are pawns in their game and this and that which is a way that we often deal with gods and stories I mean whether we want to call them gods gods or not, they're certainly beings that are above or different or separate from humanity in some way as you're discussing. Um I was
3: just thinking, I guess, of the, of the 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 symbolism behind fairies, what they often kind of represent in particular stories. Like especially the the heroic medieval stuff which we have here, and I think there's a sense of they're supposed to cause you to kind of question your your own wisdom and power because they're clearly better than you. They're older, they're smarter, they're stronger, and so it kind of makes you kind of question what worth you you have. But they're also uh, they're supposed to be kind of a, a reference to kind of an earlier age. They cause you to question your values because they represent, I think, an, mm-hmm. an older or different one. Like, they're they're the remnants of the pagan gods in Celtic stories. They're they're an older belief system, an older culture. And you kind of have that here, except the modern culture, I think, is maybe not Christianity, at least with regards to Brian. It's science. Right. Like, yeah. he constantly says he's not comfortable with other world because it violates his what he knows about science, but what he, what he knows about the world. So he does not want to engage with them because they make him question the validity of this value system he's kind of based his own life on and he's unsure how this other system connects with his and so i found that very interesting when i in love the old stories it's more that the their values their existence makes uh, the christianity of of the the
0: arthurian knights problematic in a kind of a similar way. Yeah. Anna, can I throw a question at
1: Bevan, if that's okay? Of course, of course.
0: So my reading of Arthurian lore is um, not to the level of myth. It's mostly just Monmouth and Mallory, right? But I would argue that in those texts, Merlin is very much like a superhero uh and i think specifically he's paternalistic you know i mean it's the idea that merlin is yeah he's pulling strings but he's the one safeguarding the kingdom by doing so do you think that's a fair reading and does that in, in your eyes surface in excalibur in ways either you know honoring that or pushing hard against that well Merlin's
3: a very complicated character and he he's changed he and I I think like every, all the Arthurian characters are kind of I think good or bad just depending upon the particular author at that, that moment that they, they fluctuate yeah. a lot <laughs> or
0: nation right yeah.
3: So like sometimes Merlin is very heroic, like when he first shows up in uh Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. He's this total, yeah, as you say the safeguarding figure who who guides the the creation of King Arthur. He's also a scientist interestingly, not really a wizard yeah. in the same way. Prophecy is his only supernatural power. Everything else is done by like uh machinery or he uses supposedly makeup to make Uther Pendragon look like Ukraine's husband to to create Arthur. Later stuff is more problematic. Like in Mallory, he's actually a very problematic character.
0: Yeah, Uh, gets punished for it.
3: And he gets punished for it. So I think in that way, he's maybe kind of similar to uh, the Merlin in, in Excalibur that he's, I guess, on the right side Sort of. He's he's trying to, you know, protect the universe or protect Britain in the case of uh the there are the Arthur stories. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's a good person. Right. And he's still going to he's still a, a puppet master and he still if he wants something, whether it's you know, his own his own dis, indulging his own desires or to get some something that he wants, he's still he's often kind of going to
1: going to do it. Well, why is the character of Merlin so flexible in so many of the retellings and tellings of the Arthurian mythology. And I mean, we see that playing out again in Marvel Comics, which has many versions of Merlin, which I read all about in in preparation for for this episode. (laughs) The one in the Black Knight comics is sort of the same as the one we have here. The one that we have in the Captain Britain mythology is sort of a multiversal being who claims to be all the Merlins, but none of them. And it's very uh, esoteric. So there's a lot of questions going on there about which Merlin is which. <laughs> and whether there is a single Merlin, and there clearly are multiple in this particular universe. But I mean, why is this character so so flexible, Bevan? I mean, is Merlin the most flexible character in the in the Arthurian legend?
3: I mean, maybe. I mean, something pretty flexible, like Guinevere, Arthur's yeah. uh, wife, moves from being a. A virtuous hero to being a flawed character to being an active villain, depending upon what she's yeah, for. for. Sure. So a lot of people are really flexible. But maybe Merlin opens that because he's a much more behind-the-scenes figure. Like he he he's a guide, he's a prophet, he's an instigator, and so that makes him very much of kind of a a plot device figure. And which I think is definitely how he's generally used in Marvel comics whether it's like black knight or excalibur or captain britain you need someone to show up and send the hero off on a mission or make their mission more complicated and so he does that and he goes on his way and then he can show up again and do it for someone else and because maybe his motivations are not as clear because he's not the focus that makes him uh, a much more adaptable figure i mean he's he's actively a shapeshifter next to prophecy that's his most yeah. uh Iconic power in the folklore So maybe it kind of makes sense He's also more of a, a conceptual Or a narrative shapeshifter Than a lot of other characters uh, Are adapting to the needs of a particular story
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and that ambiguity Of motive might kind of speak to that As well, I mean, I'm, I'm still curious About the other world stuff and, and King Arthur and sort of the relationship To some of the themes having to do With imperialism and masculinity that we've had Threaded throughout Excalibur and obviously Going back to Alan Moore stuff as well I mean, do you see the ways that this folklore is being mobilized in these stories as being critical or is it sort of replicating elements of the, because I mean, you know, Arthur is often brought up in imperialist contexts to, you know, bolster a sense of nationalism, a sense of identity, a sense of like us versus them, which is part of what I find weird about the speech in Sword is Drawn, you know, it's very uncritical of that entire mythology and very like, this is just a good thing objectively. And it's like, oh, okay, that's a bit weird doesn't really line up with sort of my understanding of some of the things they were doing with that in, in Alan Moore. But, I mean, I was curious about your thoughts about it.
3: I mean, Arthur's interesting. I think it's ironic that Arthur has become this kind of imperialist uh, British, em- uh, English- British Empire figure because, I said previously, he was the enemy of the English. He was yeah. an anti-imperialist figure. He's, he's the Welsh... And the Cornish freedom fighter trying to protect his land from the invading English forces. So it, it, it's interesting. He kind of became culturally appropriated later as this as this Britannia
2: figure. Um, that's what I was going to say. What is British imperialism if not appropriation, though? Right? Like that's going <laughs> to be. And I don't. I mean, what are you saying about the British? Museum? British lit- <laughs> What I'm saying is that that is the you know. Actually, not even British imperialism, only British imperialism because they're the most, you know, they were the best at it in modern modern history. But Empire, by its very nature, hegemonically works by taking what's there and adapting it within the whole of, you know, yeah, sure you were the enemy of the British, but, you know, we won, so now you're going to be our hero. That's just how that works. That's how you yeah. conversion literature. yes, and and when I say I should be clear about this, people use the term cultural appropriation in popular culture currently it's a it's a big term that doesn't mean What it means academically, right? Like what most people who use it like in popular parlance mean is they're just talking about assimilation, really, or they're talking about copying. Actual appropriation is what's happening here. You know, like when you're actually taking the Welsh or Celtic myth and turning it into our new culture. You know, you will be the British Empire.
3: So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess even like that's interesting way you hear it's the idea of using symbols, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I find it really fascinating and I like to look at King Arthur, sorry, uh, or Merlin rather he's captain britain's father figure merlin explicitly mentions that in the alan moore run that brian saw him as a father and so it's this idea that he sees him as a father and you know he's a good british boy uh english boy he probably read he read mallory when when growing up he probably dreamed of being a knight as a kid and so i think we we get this idea of i think even mentioned in some ways he you know he lived he grew up with books because he didn't have any friends and so i think there's this idea that merlin is building upon that cultural expectation of little brian wanting to be a knight wanting a father to take care of him reading sword in the stone where merlin is effectively the father of and the tutor of young king arthur and he exploits that and i guess the implication he exploits that with all of the uh of the Captain Britain Corps, that he, he either created those legends himself or now he's moved in and he's, if there was, maybe there is a separate Merlin, beca- like original Merlin, because it's, they're really ambiguous about this, about how he relates to those, and he he's kind of moved in and he is using those legends to kind of control the core. I did some research, so there's an interesting image in the Alamur run where he asks roma what merlin asked roma what form he can appear when appearing to to brian and like should it be this and this and this And they seem like all versions of merlin and one of them is the merlin from early cat and britain comics one of them is like this sort of angry guy with like a a cloak full of stars and that was a a merlin who kind of like fought the fantastic four and the x-men i think in some early comics and that was retconned as not being Merlin. That's like an ancient Hyperborean uh, wizard from Conan's time. Then the, the third Merlin he takes is the Merlin from the uh, Doctor Who comic book, which was revealed to be a later incarnation of the Doctor. So also not the real Merlin. <laughs> and so he's, it's, it's like he's secretly, he's, he's pretending to be all of the Merlins who've shown up in the Marvel Universe. And he's playing with people's expectations of them. And he's playing with the, with the idea that the characters, I think, have read the legends in the same way the readers have. And so it's like he's he's using the
0: legends,
3: yeah, to have the characters kind of react to it. And I think yeah. that that's an interesting element of it in, in Excalibur and Captain Burton.
0: It's like the Ben Gassard in Dune. Dune <laughs> reference. Wow. A,
2: I wasn't expecting that today. Okay. <laughs>
1: we're not talking about Dune today i um, um, was enough of my timeline like a few months ago the, um, i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm not i'm not a hater i've read dune but it's been a while oh, i actually I, don't like
0: uh, Dune, so we're good oh okay I'm not, i've not
2: even read it you can hate on dune i i've, I've seen okay it's. It was. I mean, you let's
0: lose some listeners. Why are
1: we talking it about fine. it now? Why are we? It was talking
0: mediocre about... and fine. <laughs> I admire <laughs> the book. I don't like the book. Okay. Um, I'm an. I'm an agnostic. I, I.
1: I don't. I don't have strong feelings either way. Um, <laughs> Taking the easy way out. But I mean, I, I like that idea that the way that they're using Merlin here and the way that they're using kind of like the larger context of British folklore can be sort of inherently self-reflexive in its ambiguity, right? Because the characters are forced to negotiate their relationship to these stories. And I do like that in theory. I mean, again, we can argue with how well it's working in this particular yeah. issue. And I want to talk about the character stuff with Brian next. So we're going to well, get to that. But still, I like I think
2: that idea in theory. I mean he brought more to it than Davis did. I mean Davis is going through the, and I don't Davis is going through the motions as much as he can and to be fair that book that no one read but us, you know, if you read Possession, it's trying to do that too. It's just bad at it, right? Possession is Higgins thinks that Brian is a flawless superhero like that's that's what that story is about he's a great leader there's no characterization in it higgins is writing his own characters he's trying to do an arthurian lore as like sort of an homage in possession without any critical awareness whatsoever and i think Moore is trying i'm sorry i think davis is trying to do that with some critical awareness and with some reflective thinking and some critique and some awareness of empire and my criticism of davis's he's been fighting off, off more than he can chew he's just not there yet but i think with the alan moore stuff in the original captain britain comic or not the original one in alan moore's captain britain comic i think that that's probably the best version of that we're going to get right
0: now yeah
2: but that's because that's the story that alan moore tells that's what watchman is that's what miracle man is that's what Moore does right
1: Well, okay, so let's talk about this Brian stuff. So obviously we already I already mentioned it in the summary, this idea that there's been a jinx placed on Brian and (laughs) then we get this I like how you're both already laughing. (laughs) 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 But yeah, so we get this Extra retconning thing connecting all of the death of the X Men and the Siege Perilous, and like this has all been constructed to get the Excalibur team together. And there's been a jinx on Brian that's like (laughs) limited his ability to be awesome, and that's like forced him to work within the team. So, yeah, um, as you can kind of tell, I hate this, but let's (laughs) let's let's talk about why. And I'll, I'll give you guest privilege on it, Bevan. What was your reaction to this revelation of the jinx on Brian? And I mean, I'll be clear, there's some ambiguity about it it could be like merlin is just fucking with him but kind of maybe not and anyway we'll talk about how that develops in, in future issues but let's let's stick with the issue that we have at hand here so yeah bevan what was your sort of reaction to this little bit of retconning surrounding brian and sort of merlin being behind everything
3: so um i don't like it for the most part i feel very strongly in the importance of uh choice characters in the story yeah that their actions are supposed to be meaningful they're supposed to be saying something about who they are and i think in order to do that that has to be ones that they have chosen that they, you know that it, 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 it it's, it's kind of express it's expressed their values Like i kind of said that i kind of wrote that and then i kind of walked back a little because like it occurred like i'm not totally against mind control stories like I'm a huge fan of the, the Legion TV show and a big part of yes. that is, you know, he he he's mind controlled by the Shadow King and you and you sometimes don't know where his choices end. And the shadow kings begin and yeah. so there there's a kind of a removal i guess of individual choice there but I, I so i guess maybe it's sometimes maybe adding mind control can add an interesting element to it because it can bring in some existential questions of who am i how does this say about the world how do i understand myself if i don't know what i'm doing is is my options or not but I think that made the Captain Britain and it feels like it's not doing that. He's not interested in the jinx. He's not interested in what that says about Captain Britain right now. He's more interested, I think, in using that as a retcon. And in that case, it has, I guess, all the bad elements
0: of a mind control story, but none of the good ones i think it maybe gets a little bit hand wavy too i think that's one of the problems i have with it the idea that you get this massive reveal and in that same issue like the next scene it's oh can you get rid of that jinx yeah okay cool and stuff you know what i mean like, like like if they were going to explore that something on that stage and that scale i would like it to be unfolding slowly over the course of an arc and i would like brian to earn the you know loss of that jinx but Yeah, It just, it feels like Davis, I mean, exactly as Bevan said, just wanted to brush this off uh, and launch into his new direction. I
2: don't, I don't think there's any other way of reading it. And again, knowing the future of where this goes, right? Like, I don't think Davis thought it through. I think this was really... This was totally him just hand-waving away stuff he didn't want to deal with. That's what it was. It's not deeper than that. I think it takes a lot of headcanon and a lot of massaging in order to make it deeper than that. And in the same way as I said a couple of issues ago, something that I didn't like was that he just essentially hand-waved away Kurt's attraction to megan yeah and, yeah, said, we talked about and said we're done with this love triangle it was just a dream and a fantasy and I'm, I'm done with it and it's over now and you know and you see at the end of this uh, at the end of this story when megan when the team reunites when megan and rachel show up and brian shows up and everybody's like oh hey nice to see y'all are we good yep we're good and that's that's not sarcastic that's not hiding feelings which is what like if claremont had done this this would have been are we good yeah yeah, we're good. You know, like, that's, that's how we're <laughs> <have> back, <been>, right? <laughs> sure, sure, Cyclops, we're fine, and I'm going to try to stab you later. That's not what this is. This is, yeah, we're good now because I'm done with the stupid love triangle. We're good now because I'm done with Brian being an alcoholic idiot. That's what Alan wants. Alan wants Brian to... I don't think Alan wants Brian to be the the superhero that is the leader, the infallible leader. He doesn't want him to be Captain America the way that Labdell wants Brian to be or, or Higgins. Higgins really wants Brian to be Superman. Davis doesn't want that, but Davis does not want him to be the butt of the joke, and this was his way of turning that off and the quicker the better that's what he did and he just shut it off and it's uncomfortable and it's uninteresting he's and resolving
0: all the, the interpersonal con- conflict and that's right that's, because that's he's done part of Excalibur well, yeah. he's
2: interested in he's he's interested in telling this epic otherworld story, which I don't I yeah, don't find good. as interesting personally. But it's his choice. It's just that how he got there, like we've you know, if we're gonna be if we're gonna critique this, how he gets there is awkward. It's awkward right. and it's weird and it's not actually very good.
3: Uh, I, I was just saying I think an ironic thing that in some ways maybe if this is if it was better done, it would be more more interesting. I think maybe uh, engagement with the uh, the Arthurian elements and with the ele- stuff that's gone before, like. I know it's come up a few times, like on Twitter, uh, on the oh gosh, oh uh, golly, uh, Twitter, that Captain Britain, that Brian has no choice in being who he was. He was he was recruited, and you find out that you know oh, wow. even he was bred to be Captain Britain. He he's a child of other world, and like that that is very you know that is very Arthurian. That the characters you know they're born to be king, they're born to be warriors. They often have no choices in who they are. It feels almost kind of like a Greek tragedy, and they and they struggle against them. They. Try to find the true love that was denied them or they try to be a different person who they're supposed to be and that often is what results in kind of tragedy so if they established this as being like a you know kind of like a like a greek tragedy destiny where the oracle has said that you know you have to be doing this and then brian doesn't want to if there was a a pushback against that. I think that could be an interesting engagement with the material.
1: Well yeah, I mean my my like my like one part of it that I think is sort of redeemable is essentially what you're saying, Bevin, that it's the story about Brian is placed on this chessboard and he doesn't have any choice in anything that's going on around him and that can be bound up in that you know, critique of, of whatever we want to say it's a critique of. It can be a critique of various institutions. It can be a critique of various stories. And yet mm-hmm. it absolves Brian in the same breadth. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. all of these things that we've been talking about, about his motivations, his discomfort with his masculinity, like his discomfort with, you know, the idea of heroism as he understands it, all of that gets wiped away by just making it like it's not that he was making these mistakes because of this deep seated discomfort, which came out in Toxic Masculinity and all this stuff that we've done such a wonderful job unpacking on the podcast with so many smart guests <laughs> for so it. many hours. <laughs> We brought so much complexity to this story, and then it's like, no, it wasn't toxic masculinity. It was just magic. (laughs)
2: Yeah, and and now it's through you. I know, (laughs) I know, (laughs) and. My problem with it, here's my my problem with it, is I don't think it needs to be an either-or choice. I think this is a failing mm-hmm. on Davis's part. And again, we've gushed about Davis a lot, so I don't want yeah. any— If this is your first issue of Gosh Golly, Wow, I love Alan Davis. Oh, yeah, um, go back and, to the
1: previous three episodes. We did a lot of gushing.
2: Right, right. So this is just—this is where he makes a mistake. My favorite version—so, uh, rewind— about 30 minutes on of conversation on on this show. Bevan, you've talked about how there's different versions of Arthur, you know, is he a is he a hero is he a villain? Um the Arthurian legends are templates for stories they've been told so many times. Yeah. My favorite version probably or my favorite classic version is probably Once and Future King, T.H. White, right? Like I I like that version of a very flawed king right this is the failings of living up to a legend and then my favorite modern version of this of this same story is mage the comic book mage which i think is brilliantly told of the flaws of some i mean it is a meta story about the flaws of literally trying to live up to the king arthur legend the, what does it mean to be the Pendragon, right so like i think you can do this in an interesting way and you can deal with stuff of like how do i be the perfect man if i'm not the perfect man and it felt like davis was uninterested in not being the perfect man so he just snapped his fingers and brian's perfect again and i think that makes that inherently makes brian less interesting to me i'd rather see him struggle to get through the story the storyline that davis wants to tell here fast forward the next couple of of episodes that we're going to do is interesting it's just that at least for a while of this um it's just that um he doesn't you know he he simplifies brian too much and he simplifies the storyline you know with kurt Too much. The the love triangle between Kurt, Megan, and Brian should be the Lancelot story. It could be. That would give us an Arthurian parallel, but he's uninterested in that, so it goes away. Um, Yeah,
1: like imagine like the Arthur story if, you know, Lancelot and and Arthur just like made up and were friends again and just never talked about that whole thing that happened ever again. Because that's basically what we have going (laughs) on here. (laughs) And,
2: And and little things like that, you know, like we remove the interpersonal drama because it's gross and dirty. But that's what made it interesting to me was I liked the, the, yeah. diir- the dirtiness of the story. Exactly.
1: Yeah, it's a problem. I mean, again, like, leaving the door open that there is some ambiguity here. I mean, we get the guy that Brian is talking to kind of morphing into the outline of Merlin. So there's some suggestion that, like, maybe this is all a ruse, and, like, this is another way of kind of messing with Brian. And so we do have a little tiny get-out-of-jail-free card here, but I agree with what everybody's saying, that it just, on the sort of primary level, it feels like a simplification of Brian that is frustrating. Let's talk about some of the other stuff that goes on in this issue, like... I don't know which thing we want to talk about. There's so much that happens in this issue and there's like little moments that I like that are interesting. Like, I was sort of curious to talk about the characterization of Saturnine because I thought that that was sort of another interesting part of this issue. I found the characterization very off in this issue and I wasn't sure if I was the only one that felt that way. I can see the elements of the character present here and yet it felt so different from the last time we saw the character and I didn't know if I was alone in that or not. See, I I thought it was
0: actually a return to Alan Morris. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. See I don't that. know if anybody else thought that, but it felt very. No, I to me.
2: Really, I think Davis thinks she's. I think Davis thinks she's incompetent, and I don't see it. Like she's not scary to me at all. Here, she's. She's too. I, I think it's supposed to be funny. I just see her as neutered here in so many ways. But she. Has I see a what you're saying. Sleeve.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I see what you're saying, though, Andrea. In terms of bringing her back to that, because she was a much more sort of—I don't want to say overtly evil, but definitely more she had ambiguous. a different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, definitely screwed Brian over, you know, very directly, and like left him to die that. and that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. So, like, I get that aspect of it, but I—I I definitely think that there's an aspect of her menace that's diminished here by making her too human in some ways, and I found that frustrating.
3: I kind of feel like, like reading Ellen, like she was, she was—I think—much more human. I think in Alan Moore than Mm -hmm. she was in in later stuff. Like when she shows up initially in Excalibur and, you know, she's got like the big, cloak and everything she very much you know she feels like you know this much more kind of distant fairy queen i think i think there is a humanness and maybe it's because she's powerless for a large amount of alan moore's run yeah that uh has some similarities with with how she maybe is portrayed here
1: yeah because i'm thinking about the storyline with her and it's her and linda right and the captain britain alan moore stuff and she is quite sort of human and down to earth there so maybe i'm just sort of feeling that disjuncture because of what a different character she's been in the claremont run for the most part
2: and bends her gun like that's uh, she's like uh that's a it makes her a bugs bunny villain it makes her elmer fudd and And, and she's not she's not and i like elmer fudd but elmer fudd doesn't frighten me and Saturday yeah. shit.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean maybe I guess that's what I'm sort of getting at, right? Because the constituent elements are here. I mean, the thing of her with the manslave, I mean, that's like great. I mean, i I like it in theory. And then her showing up with the big gun. I mean, it's a wonderful image of her with her stately cape and everything and the enormous gun and that's great. But yeah, it sort of reverts to comedy in a way that takes away a lot of her menace. And I think that's sort of what we're getting at. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about Kurt's character development, obviously, before we completely run out of time, because I would argue that we see Kurt kind of developing also into quite a different character under Davis than he's been, and it's not a hard break. I mean, this character is consistent with my understanding of the character, and yet, I don't know, I find that there's been a change. I don't know. I was wondering if, like, we felt that too. I mean, we talked about his leadership a little bit when we talked about Excalibur 45, but... I don't know. Am I totally, totally off base here? Do we find what happens with him in this in this comic interesting, how he reacts to all of these developments?
0: I mean, for me personally, it's just it, it, it's part of that same vein that we were talking about about resolving interior conflict. Um I, I like Kurt's uncertainty. I, I think that's especially important for a character who speaks to faith. So 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 for me, it does take a little bit of the edge off Nightcrawler. Like I like it. I like to see him happy and successful and having his own little team of end men, but I, I also like the Kurt who is constantly struggling with with who he is, um, even as he accepts himself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just see it as him being a little bit more infallible under Davis, in ways that, again, strip away some of that sort of character complexity that I'm kind of used to, and it's funny, because if you're a Kurt Stan, you sort of want to embrace that, you're like, man, he makes Nightcrawler awesome and able to do no wrong. I mean, that's great, right?
0: (laughs) And yet, I'm like,
1: hmm, that's not necessarily what I wanted. I mean, I wanted, you know, him to be complex as well
2: maybe it depends on the kind of fan you are because see i'm i'm never like that with any of my favorites right like like mm. my favorite characters not even just in superhero comics my favorite characters period are always i want to see the characters that i love struggle i want to see yeah yeah uh, and we've talked about this on the show a lot my favorite ex-character is iliana because mm-hmm. she can't do anything right everything is you know, a, a, you know her origin story is that she gives up the majority of her soul like that's that's <laughs> tough right <laughs> so like, like, like that's literally where she starts is like yeah i'm gonna i'm, I'm minus 60 percent of a soul that's uh, and and that's what makes her interesting to me so i want to see you know i love the show riverdale on television which is just all about everyone screwing up and i want to see people struggle i think kurt is interesting here and I, I said um he has what i think is the most interesting line he's had in a long time which was when cerise shows up and she's like well point me to the nearest human he's like um that would be you probably just he just looks around and that observation i think is brilliant and i kind of want to see that story to where kurt is suddenly reckoning with the fact that like everyone in his orbit is odd in the way that he's always felt like to me so the story here is kurt has always been the outsider around everyone that he knows Mm -hmm. even with the x-men you know yeah, sure they're all mutants, but most for the most part everyone he hangs around with is nominally human passing. He's not, right? Uh, maybe Hank when Hank's around, but like mostly Hank's not around the X-Men when Kurt's an X-Man. So, now Kurt is with this team of people, particularly when the Technets there, he looks around and, "Oh my god, I am surrounded by people who are even less human than I am." You know, that is Weird for him and insightful. And if we didn't have this, you know, four page recap of possession to get to, there could, you know, we could maybe spend some time with that. And we don't get to because I do think there's an interesting story there. So that was my thing where I'm like, oh, there's some, that's some really, really intense character development for Kurt that I have to do entirely in my head.
1: I know, I know. Let's like, let's move to sort of some moments from this comic, you know, effectively final thoughts that we, that we sort of wanted to do before we leave the issue behind and i'll give you a chance to do yours andrew uh, in part because i know you're gonna have to run um but was there <laughs> was there sort of a scene or a dynamic yeah. in this issue that we haven't talked about that you wanted to bring up?
0: yeah it's a small one but this this might be my like favorite quote in excalibur it's kind of counterintuitively like i read this long before i had my kids but um when when numbers says daddy am i <laughs> joy oh joy like that's the perfect encapsulation of what it's like to hold your child for the first time this like juvenile half <laughs> bliss and I always think of that. Like like I, I really oh identified god. with that in like the weirdest way. I think that's why I like Numbers and Dragons so much.
1: Oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> I I hope that at some point, if you haven't already, that you that you tell that your children that you think about your joy of being a parent as <laughs> Numbers and the Dragon hatching a million tiny dragon lizard hybrid characters.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I think numbers is The number is such a great character because he feels so domestic. Like it's almost like the Munsters or something. That he's this lumbering lizard monster, and his he's dating a you know he's married to a dragon, but he just he's speaking this weird broken English. But he's also just this regular guy. He's a regular dad with a with a regular beautiful wife and some regular beautiful kids, and he doesn't think there's anything at all unusual about his situation.
1: Yeah, I do love the play of like sort of domesticity and difference in that scene where we have the wonderful half splash of all the babies hatching and that's a beautiful 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 image and then it's very quickly domesticated by being like oh this is just our children and everything's fine and <laughs> I do that is a curve moment I like him like rolling with the punches there and just being like yeah that's fine and like that's very him to me but that, that's adorable Andrew I love that so much I'm so glad that that you got a chance to tell us that <laughs> Um, yeah other kind of moments that we wanted to just touch on before we finish up I just again I just feel like this is an issue with a lot of moments that I do actually really like and there's some individual sort of panels and scenes that I like I mean I love as much as it flattens the conflict I do like the panel where Megan and Rachel arrive back and Kurt does it was a thing where the body language is doing sort of a lot of the story like adding some of that depth back into the story that we've sort of been complaining about the story not having because the nature of the hug there in that panel so this is on page 27 the first panel on page 27 and you know we have kurt saying it's so good to see you again and rachel has her arm around megan and then kurt has his arm on megan's shoulder and then rachel's hand is over kurt's hand and then megan is holding kurt's arm and then rachel also has her arm around kurt's back and just the way that the embrace is so entangled there and the nature of the bonds between those characters is sort of expressed in the nature of the hug i really like the visual storytelling that's going on there which again can almost be a counterpoint to how Davis sometimes writes his story a little bit flat. There's still that complexity coming out and sort of the visualization of that story. And I just, that's a beautiful panel to me.
2: He's doing some of the work. So that panel... Is also the most non-sexually Kurt has treated Megan in forty-seven-ish.
1: I know that's that's part and, of what I like about it.
2: And I mean, it's a it's a it's a shift. And again, I'm okay with it. But part of the sexualization of their relationship yeah, is Alan yeah. Davis's fault. You did this. I know. You know? I know. <laughs> like this is sort of uh okay. No, I was never in love with her. Like uh, really, really was he? Wasn't he? You know. But it does establish a status quo in one panel.
1: Yeah, and I should backtrack on what I was saying. Like in terms of me liking that it's not sexy i mean there's two sides of that right because it does simplify the dynamic between them and it lets kurt kurt off the hook you know for some of his behavior so i can see mm-hmm. not liking it on that level um but yeah. at the same time like it's frustrating to me the fact that kurt doesn't necessarily relate to megan as a person as effectively as he might do and i want him to so on the other hand i like that this is a non-sexual touch so i'm torn on it i'm very torn on it
2: it if it were earned i would have i think it would be better yeah if it yeah were if, it's true. I do think it becomes more so as we move on, particularly given some other stuff that's going to happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Anyway, Bevan, you wanted to add Babin. something a second ago.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's not as related to that particular
3: conversation. It's just something else that it kind of struck me about that when I was reading the comic. Something that sort of come up Definitely in earlier installments of the pod, you could, there's been kind of the talk of sort of Megan and Kurt both kind of fulfilling different like fairy archetypes. Sort of Megan as being kind of you know the nature you know the nature spirit, uh, the the shape shifting fairy. Kurt being kind of the uh, the elf like like Legolas or something. And like, he, and like Shadowcat has that too. Like her original name in the comics was Ariel, you know, air, the air fairy from Tempest, then Sprite, which is sort of now kind of used as a term for like a little bear with butterfly wings. I what's so fascinating is that Brian is literally a fairy. <laughs> His father's from other world. Like that is literally in, especially in the medieval context, that is what a fairy is. Uh, Megan is in comparison, very human and very not fairy. And so I found that kind of reversal of elements really kind of fascinating and just, and especially because in medieval folklore, they are the fairies, the the fair folk are just these big, sorry, big blonde demigods. They've got pale skin and they've got gold hair because those are the fairy colors and they're just kind of going around being, being very kind of impressive and I guess kind of shallow because they don't really have souls in the same way that humans do and so I, I i just found that really fascinating that's kind of probably the most persistent but subtle engagement with english uh, even more british folklore Brian is a sort of changeling figure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I like that as like an element that we can read into sort of a complexification of both characters and the relationship between both characters, because it works nicely that Brian is the one who seems normatively human, who is actually magical, and Kurt is the one who seems like he would be a fairy and magical, but is actually deeply human. Mm-hmm. Like, that's sort of a nice kind of contrast, um, because that's often sort of core to Kurt's character, right? He looks like a demon, but he's actually this really good, nice guy who has deep human emotions and sort of... Of the humanness of his character is why he's often a very identifiable character and everything. So that kind of works for me in that context.
3: Yeah, and I guess it's even that Brian wants to be human. He's constantly pulled away from it. He's pulled into otherworld often. He's pulled into Merlin's schemes because he's this half-human puppet that he he kind of aspires to. I guess maybe almost have the, the humanity that Kurt does, which maybe makes his uh, his jealousy of Kurt especially kind of uh, interesting. He wants yeah, Kurt's that's soul. A good one. <laughs>
1: Here. yeah that's a good way of putting it um Mav were, were there other moments that you wanted to highlight yeah. before we oh. before we close up I want to
2: say some nice stuff about Alan Davis because there's, a, there's okay. a, I came hard on him <laughs> mm-hmm. there are a lot of things in here I mean I talked about a lot of stuff that I hated in this book but, for this issue but there are a lot of actual really good good subtle storytelling that is sort of This is the emergent writer in Alan Davis coming up that like just details that I that I love. One is, even though I don't like that he got rid of all the interpersonal drama, you highlighted one of the panels, which was the the Kurt, Megan and Rachel reunion. Mm -hmm. But also the um, Megan and Brian, when Brian shows up, it's like first thing, big giant kiss, which is like yeah, yeah, all of our relationship drama is over. And that is signaled in one panel, which I don't like the decision. But if you're going to do it, he did it brilliantly. So, oh, the, so it's that a
1: nicely, it. it is a nicely drawn kiss too.
2: Yeah. And it, and it, and it shows you that these are two people in love that, Again, I don't like the story, but he did it well. Other details just that we haven't talked about. So just want to point out for the listener. If you go through and read this, pay attention to the things that both Kylan and Cerise say, because we didn't talk much about them. (laughs) There are new characters, but like they both repeat themselves a couple of times. I am Cerise, warrior of the Grand Jahar, Jean yeah, She basically giving you, her stilted alien origin over and over and over again. And then Kylan is very much refusing to talk about, you know, himself. That matters. Those little details like that. I like the little, we get a ton of characterization from Saturnine. I don't think that's a man slave. I think that is probably a hero, but she doesn't care. She's just like, yeah, you're a one-time booty call because that's how much I care about you. And I think that that is brilliantly done. In two panels of like, oh, yeah, I was having sex. I was enjoying myself, but it's work time. So you don't matter anymore. Brilliant. And then the last thing Lockheed has a Lockheed midwives and has like a little surgeon's gown, (laughs) which I just think is adorable on page two. And it doesn't come up again. I don't know where he got it. I don't know how he's flying wearing it. I don't know how he put it on. But it's so cute. It is just so cute. Mm-hmm. It's the best part of this uh, <laughs> that sequence. Like Lockheed helps with the birth of the dragons, and of course is in is in scrubs. So I I just love that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's difficult because although we've been complaining so much about story elements of this issue, there's just so many beautiful individual moments in this issue mm-hmm. that I think if you are a fan of Excalibur, you're going to be able to enjoy it on that level because Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's hard I mean, to This is yeah. not.
2: This is said we're going to be fair on this show and sometimes mm-hmm. it means critiquing people that we love. And, you know, if we're going to come hard on a Luddall then we have to be able to do that for Davis when yeah, yeah. when there are issues. And I, and I think that's what this issue is.
1: Well, the one, the last thing that I wanted to spotlight was the uh Kurt and Brian exchange of the like, <laughs> I was a fool. Can you forgive me? Yes, for a suitably large amount of money. <laughs> i've debated with myself over the years of whether kurt's joking or not and i very much hope he's not joking in my head canon, brian thinks he's joking and then sort of laughs it off and then kurt just reminds him every single day about the money but yeah i really hope that he got paid that money i like kurt standing up for himself and, and requesting an actual physical compensation for this incident <laughs> brian is rich i mean come on i know and kurt is not he should fucking right, pay right. him some money yeah absolutely um bevan i will give you the last word anything that you anything else that you particularly wanted to spotlight from this issue that we didn't get a chance to talk about
3: yes actually um and it, it's, it's kind it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting thing so i really i really like cerise's design i mm. think the intensity of the purples Kind of the whole and you know, the pinks and like the and kind of like the complexity of kind of the visual look, I think, is really cool. It occurs to me. I guess it's kind of funny that maybe it's kind of funny that sort of uh, Saturnine is not really up to snuff in this story because I feel that uh, Cerise has she's obviously a different person, but it has a. Uh, kind of a royalty and kind of uh, a glamour to her that I find is instantly kind of eye-catching, which I guess is kind of similar to how Saturn 9 was previously used often. And uh, I guess the thing that really struck me about her is the weird design of her hair like the kind of like the swoosh kind of going back on both sides of the head and her huge talons when she shows up i don't know she kind of strikes me as this weird like really glamorous wolverine
0: yeah Mm -hmm. like Uh like she's
3: got this kind of glamour model version of his hair and she's got these really glamorous version of his claws, and she's she yeah she kind of feels like like supermodel Wolverine wearing mm-hmm. beautiful armor. And so I I just found that interesting, especially with the you know the Nightcrawler you know gets a thing for her later that mm-hmm. you know that was just uh, an interesting kind of coming together uh, of imagery that I felt was was really evocative and was an interesting foreshadowing, whether that was uh, intentional or not.
1: (laughs) Oh boy, I can't. We're going to get to talk about Kurt and Cerise uh, a lot more in future episodes, obviously, but um, yes, I enjoy that about the character as well. I'm glad that you pointed it out. (laughs) The sort of many levels of Logan uh, having a thing for Kurt's mom and then Kurt having a thing for a woman who has elements of Logan um, is very interesting, let's put it that way. I had totally honestly forgot to total honesty that Cerise's origin wasn't originally connected to the Shi'ar and... I felt very dumb rereading this and realizing that that wasn't originally Alan Davis's intent. So, That's something else that we're going to talk about later, but uh, yeah.
2: yeah. I, so did I, and to, I did not remember that she wasn't until I read this for this. I was like, oh, I was, and you know, she tells us six times. So, you know.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. But anyway.
2: I was saying, she, because she kind of shows up just
3: like uh, Lalandra did in X-Men mm-hmm. with kind of armor very reminiscent of her
1: yeah so it seems like it should make sense but apparently that maybe was not alan davis's intention anyway that's another thing that we'll talk about later but i felt very silly not realizing that i'd forgotten that wasn't originally the explanation of the character what must i do now kill them i can tell you nothing my days are ended. the gods of once are gone forever It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now more than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend. Will I see you again? No. (laughs) There are other worlds. This one is done. So I think we will leave things there. other than to do our usual wrap-up things. So, Bevan, thank you so, so very dearly for joining us, and I know you've been listening to the pod for a while, and it's great to have a chance to talk with you outside of the Twitter sphere. But before we go, though, we should give you a chance to plug your stuff. So, if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you, and what work of yours should they be checking out? Alright,
3: so my website is bevantomas.ca It includes a list of, like, all my anthology i've worked on the particular stories i've explored i also have a blog that i up to update sporadically with whatever i find interesting at the particular moment like uh it's got everything from adapting welsh mythology to Dungeons and dragons to uh how to reinvent batman's villains to make them a little work a little more with kind of the mental health themes that they're supposedly
0: representing
3: um in addition cloudscape comics at classiccomics.com sells like a lot of my anthologies of particular focus we have epic canadiana the anthologies i did about canadian superheroes with like pastiches to a lot of the heroes from like the 1940s like johnny canuck and nilvan of the north and Mm -hmm. my most recent anthology through the labyrinth of the mind which is different stories of mental health like different cartoonists Dealing with um, stories related to there's the depression, anxiety, PTSD, that sort of thing. You can also follow me on Twitter and I talk about various stuff there.
1: Excellent. We will certainly link all of those things in our show notes and on Twitter. Thank you so, so, so much again, Bevan. Next, in one week's time, we'll be discussing Excalibur number 48, Irish Stew, in which Excalibur does some excavating into some flashbacks and more cross-dimensional shenanigans and an encounter with the Anti-Phoenix. It's a lot, and we will, as usual, be here for it. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes Episodes, which you can find via our website Or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel As always if you want to chat with us about Excalibur Or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode Let us know You can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com Where we've got some fun extras And via Twitter at goshgollywow Where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week And more fun extras Thank you Andrew and Mav for another mythic conversation Thank you Bevan for guiding us through these magical realms Thank you all for listening And a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music For our truly epic theme song Play us Stopping.